with me, if you have a Bible this morning, over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles provided for you. They're on the, uh, on the floor, kind of at the center of each aisle, up under the chairs. And somebody would be happy to pass one down to you if you didn't bring one with you. And feel free to take that with you. Uh, and we would love for you to have it if you don't own a copy of the Bible. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a letter that Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to his friends who were at a church that he founded several years earlier, but a church that had already kind of gone off the rails, so to speak. And one of the things that he's calling them on the carpet for here is their disunity. And he's, and he's doing it in the context of what has become one of the defining marks of Christianity throughout all of its history. It's a ritual that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. Now, I don't know what your association with this ritual is. I don't know what your background is, whether you were raised in, in, a, in a Christian context or what kind of uh, church you were raised in, if you were raised in church at all, or whether perhaps you're... You're at a church today for the first time. Chances are, if you know anything about Christianity, you know that Christians have been about this particular ritual ever since the beginning. And maybe it's even a little bit mysterious to you. I mean, it, it certainly is explained in lots of different ways, in different traditions, different branches of the church. Maybe that's been confusing to you. It's practiced in lots of different ways, in different parts of the world, and even here in the United States. Maybe you've even been turned off by how it's practiced sometimes. It's sort of a, a rote, almost knee-jerk thing that we do because we do it that's been mechanized now and made as simple and easy and costless as possible by all the little trinkets that you can buy. I remember the first time, uh, we, I, remember, I remember the week before we met for the very first time as a church. We were planning to celebrate communion together. And I, so I had to go and find the cups. And I went into this bookstore and they had like an entire aisle dedicated to an American-sized plethora of options for how to pull off communion in your church, including this entire line that's called, I kid you not, Remembrance Wear. Remembrance Wear. And I remember just getting this sick feeling in my stomach. I don't know why. I mean, I don't want to be like such an elitist about this that I just impugn the motives of the people who came up with that stuff. I really don't want to do that. But there was something about it, like, especially how expensive it was. It's like you're just ripping us off because you know we can't just go to Walmart to buy the things that we need. Um, in, anyhow, I don't know what your connection to this has been. And if maybe you've had that kind of experience and communion is something that's just a little bit weird or inaccessible to you. Uh, but if that's where you are, I think today is going to be helpful for you. Today, the, the passage in the letter that we've come to is one of the few places in the New Testament where the ritual is described in detail. But here's the thing. In this particular place, it's described not as an end in itself. It isn't like Paul wanted to write to them to explain how they should be practicing communion. It's written as a sort of weapon in his battle against their selfishness. So what he says about communion is said with a purpose that's bigger than communion itself. So the real value of looking at this part of the letter is helping us to see why communion itself matters. Because it isn't just this thing that we do. It's something that's supposed to shape us into a certain kind of person. It's something that's supposed to shape our community into a certain kind of community. And this passage that we've come to this morning is as clear a statement of it as, as the Bible has. So what we've got is an opportunity to take something that maybe is familiar, I don't know, maybe it isn't, but maybe familiar but not very well understood that we do on a regular basis, to put it under the microscope and to try to come away with a really clear sense of what it's about, one that'll make it more meaningful when we participate in what churches all over the world always have done. 
Um, in fact, we're going to do it together. We're going to take this meal together as a response to the sermon this morning um, uh, because it just didn't seem right to, to talk about this passage on communion and then not celebrate it together. So what I want to do is walk you through the passage, try to help you understand why Paul went here in this particular letter, and, and from that, come away with a better sense of what this meal is supposed to do for us, what kind of community it's supposed to shape us into. Now, here's what I want to do. First, I want to read the passage uh, because some of what I'm going to say to set us up isn't going to make sense if you haven't already read it. So we're going to read the passage, then I want to set it up for today, and then we're going we're gonna to drill down on two, two points, pretty simple and straightforward. What we do when we take the Lord's Supper, and what the Lord's Supper does in us. What we do in the Lord's Supper, what the Lord's Supper is meant to do in us. Now let's, let's begin by reading the passage together so we'll know where we're headed. Please stand with me now if you found the passage, and we're going to read from verse 17 through the end of the chapter in verse 34. This is the word of the Lord. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I think I need to first set this up for you guys, because uh, there is clearly a lot about the way they were doing things that is very unfamiliar to us. And the first thing that might have jumped out at you is that it seems like when they practiced this particular ritual, they did it in the context of a full meal. That's what, that's what comes out in those first few verses that we read. Uh, there, was, there was a different social context for this meal at that time than, than we know today. Now, 
they didn't just take bread and cup. They would, they would do this, it looks like maybe tacked on to the end of a, of a full supper, maybe even a potluck kind of supper. But here's the key. Here's what it seems like they were doing. It seems like they weren't all just sharing a meal, that maybe it wasn't actually potluck, you know, where one person brings the mashed potatoes and somebody else brings the, I don't know, pasta salad. No, they were, they were bringing their own food. And then they would eat their own food. They would be together maybe in the same house, but they each had provided their own food. And so what their food had turned into was a status symbol. What it had become was an opportunity to show what you had. And to do that even more clearly because other people who were there didn't have what you had. Maybe even it was written into the sort of the, the houses where they were, where they were celebrating this. Uh, one of the, several commentators actually describing like the ancient culture and what food meals together meant back then said that if somebody's house was big enough for them to meet in, because most churches were eating in, meeting in houses at this time, if somebody's house was big enough, chances are they were big enough to have the standard sort of Roman house. And in that house, you would have separate rooms for eating. And those separate rooms were status-based rooms. So the wealthy and their best buddies would eat over here, and they would have one set of food, and then someone who fought, fell into a different social class would maybe eat in this other room, not, not with the wealthy, and not receiving the same kind of food. So everything about the whole system was, was status-obsessed. And it sounds like that's exactly what they were doing. I mean, that's what Paul calls them out for. It, it sounds maybe in the way we translate it that they were just eating first, that some people were getting there and going ahead and polishing off their food before everybody else gets there. But, but in the fuller context of this chapter, that, that isn't what it means. It's not about when they were eating. It's about how they were eating it and what they were eating. It was like, you know, kids at the lunch hour in the cafeteria comparing what each person brought in their lunchbox, their status associated with everything. And they were using it for all they had. The important point is that rather than eating together as one body, they ate their own meals. Endorsing yet again what we've seen over and over again in this letter. They were more about the standards of Roman society for playing by those rules and trying to climb up those ladders than they were each other, than they were living in light of what Jesus has done. And that's where Paul hits them. And that's where Paul introduces his take on what the Lord's Supper is about. Because you'll notice what he says to them. The main condemnation he gives to them is that when they come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that they eat. It's not, it's not about him. It's about something else. It's, it's your supper. It's about you. It's not about what you get from Jesus. It's about what you, quite literally in this case, bring to the table. So what he gives us is an opportunity for us to think about what is the Lord's Supper supposed to represent for us and then to think about what it's supposed to do in us because what he's saying is that it hasn't worked here. You guys are living as if you aren't really taking the Lord's Supper. It hasn't shaped you into the kind of person that you're supposed to be in light of what Jesus has done for you. So, so let's start with what we do in the Lord's Supper. I want to break down the three verses that Paul, or four verses that Paul, um, that Paul, where Paul gives us quotes from Jesus, when Jesus set up this ritual, what it's supposed to be, to really get a clear, close reading on what it is we do when we take this ritual. And, and that is going to set us up for understanding what the point of it is, how we're supposed to change, be different because we've taken it, because it's worked into our system. So what we do in the Lord's Supper, now, there, there's several things. I, I don't remember where I read this, but it, it's helped me out. There's, uh, breaking it down in terms of where we're looking. 
So in the Lord's Supper, we look back at what Jesus did. We look up to our Father to remind Him of His promises to us. We look out at the world proclaiming His death, the fact that He died, and that changes everything. And it's here for you if you'll take it. And we look around at each other, at the fact that we are joined together by what Jesus has done. I want to, take, I want to break this down in those categories. Starting with looking back, this is maybe the most basic thing that we do when we take the Lord's Supper. It's in the language that Paul quotes from Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. We're looking back to something that was done once and for all. We're looking back to his body and his blood. The point is what Jesus offers. Here is my body, my blood for you. Now remember it. Now here's the key. Here's where we'll fall. Here's where we're, we're, we're going to fall prey to misunderstanding what's going on here if we're not careful. When he talks about remembrance here, he does it at, he's writing as a first century Jew, not as a 21st century Westerner. And when we, when we think about remembrance, we think about mental activity. We think about recollection of something that happened to us that we can, that we can look back on and remember. When, when Jews talked about remembrance, especially in this particular way, associated with a ritual, with the covenant that they had with God, it wasn't about something they could remember. It, it wasn't about something that had happened in their experience necessarily. It wasn't about recollection. It was about reenactment. It was about taking this thing that did happen in the past and, and bringing it into the present. And building yourself around it. So if for us Westerners, remembering is about something that happened in the past that has ceased to exist, but that we bring to our minds. For first century Jew, what we're called to here, it's about reenacting something that happened that changes everything. It's about latching ourselves to it and, and, and bringing it into the present. The reason it's a meal that accomplishes this has, has a lot to do with the way covenants worked in the ancient world. You know, t- today, one writer pointed out, today, you know, if, if nations have a treaty together, there's often a big party afterwards, a big state dinner that will follow it. But in the ancient world, the dinner was the treaty. You didn't sign a treaty of peace and then celebrate. Eating together was the thing that established a covenant or a treaty. And so throughout Israel's history, they're called to feasting as a way of sort of codifying this covenant God had made with them, these promises that he'd made to care for them, to be their God, they would be his people. So we're called here to renew a covenant, to remember in the sense that we claim this thing that happened that changes everything. We bring it into the future. We bring it here to us, right here, right now, and we latch ourselves to it. The background to it is Isaiah 55, among many, many other passages. What Jesus surely had in his mind when he set this up was Isaiah's call to come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast love, sure love for David. That's what Paul was talking about. That's what Jesus before him was talking about. In, in me, in remembering me, come to the waters, bring no money and you will be satisfied. Now, now take that background. That's what it means to look to what Jesus did on the cross, giving himself for us, and to claim it 
and now compare it to what the Corinthians were doing. For them, their food was about what they have, not about what Jesus offers them. It was about proving their wealth, their self-sufficiency, their superiority to other people who don't have it. And before, we, before we're too quick to judge them for using food like this, and I, re- I read one uh, writer who wrote, who wrote this great book about, uh, about food and the theological sort of layering over on food in the, in the Bible and how food is really significant for us, a guy named Tim Chester. Listen to what he wrote just about us, okay? And, and think about the Corinthians. Think about how we could be doing what they're doing. He writes that for some, food is aspirational. I thought that was a great way to put it. Food is aspirational. We, ex- we use it, we use food to express the image or lifestyle to which we aspire. Organic and whole food produce. These are the things that prove you're enlightened and politically aware. Or maybe it's steaks and burgers. They make you feel like a true man. Or maybe it's pot roast and home-baked apple pie like your grandmother made. They make you a traditional all-American mom. A point, this writer concludes is that we can misuse food to form our identity instead of finding identity in Jesus. We use food to achieve identity instead of receive identity by grace. That's precisely what the Corinthians were doing. They came to a meal meant to remind them that they have nothing. And they came to it to assert all that they have. So Paul won't stand for it. When we come to this table, we look back. And we remember and we bring into the, into the present reality that apart from Christ, we have nothing. But in him, we have everything we need. We look back. We look up as well. We look up to God, calling on him to remember his promises. This is something we get from the other Jewish festivals. This is what they were doing. They're in covenant, but they always want to remind God that he's made this covenant with them. It's a healthy thing. It's, it's good. It's a way of celebrating him and honoring that he is what we need. So in these rituals, not only are you claiming the covenant, but you're, you're holding it up and putting God in remembrance. So the language is, is sort of about us remembering what has been done for us. But in the Old Testament anyway, a lot of times, the one who was being called on to remember was God. So think about the sign of his covenant with Noah. If you know that story, God hangs a rainbow to show that he's never going to judge the world in this way again. And, it, and the language used there is, it, is as a reminder to him of his promises. Psalm uh, 116 has language like this. This is the way they would celebrate the Passover in, in Israel's history. Psalm 116 says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. That's what we do. In this meal, we take the cup, the blood of Christ shed for us, and we hold it up, and we say to God, this is your promise. Remember your children. We have nothing on our own. We have We have nothing but our own sin to bring to this table, but you have sent us your son. Do you remember that you promised you won't look on us and see our sin any longer? Do you remember that you have promised to deliver us, to care for us as your children? Do you remember that you have promised to free us from death? We're your children. Remember your promises, O Lord. That's what the meal does. We look up and we call on him to remember. We look out. We look out. Paul says that our observance of the supper is a way of proclaiming the importance of Jesus' death until he comes. That's verse 26. As often as you do it, the reason I've put you here in this, on this earth is to proclaim to the world, to all who are looking, 
that Jesus' death is what you need. It's a kind of press release or a public service announcement every time we do it. And in a way, you know what? In a way, it's a sales pitch every time we celebrate this meal. It's the kind of meal you want to brag about. Now, you know, again, to take this back to what the Corinthians were dealing with, it's like they had taken this meal that was meant as a public service announcement or a sales pitch, and they turned it into one of those things where, you know, you know that special restaurant, that the fact that you know about it and go there and enjoy it sort of makes you feel better about yourself, feel about like an insider, and you kind of don't want it to get buzz. You know, the fact that tons of people go to Chewy's makes you maybe not want to go to Chewy's. You would rather go to the one that nobody has heard about. Or, then there's also the kind of meals where you're so overwhelmed by how good it is that you can't stop talking about it. And that, and that in a sense, your joy in this delicious food, in knowing that this restaurant or whatever offers this food, is multiplied. The more people take you up on your offer or your, on your suggestion, go and then rave about it. So there's this... I've been on like a two or three year quest to find the perfect burger in Nashville. And a lot of you are going to chuckle here because you know I, you, have, you have been on the receiving end of some of my evangelistic efforts. Because I think I, I'm, I'm pretty certain I have found it. And I'm not going to tell you what it is now. You can ask me later and I will tell you. In fact, I will fill your ear about it. And I've come to almost take personal offense when people don't think it's the best burger that they've ever had. And, and that's kind of what Paul is looking for us to do with this meal. We're, what we're saying when we look out, send out a press release, you have not lived until you have tasted this food. Come all who are hungry and you will be satisfied. Come all. Bring no money. You don't need it. It's free. And you will never be the same. That's the kind of message that we're meant to proclaim. That's what our evangelism is, essentially. It's talking about this meal. And everything that it represents to anyone who will listen to tell them Jesus has died and he is risen and he is coming again and until he does, he will receive you if you will come to him and eat. So come and be satisfied. We lastly, we look around at each other. We look around at each other. And I think this is Paul's main concern in this passage. He doesn't quote these words from Jesus to set up some sort of elaborate theory about what's going on in the Lord's Supper. Now, theologians have certainly mined this text in every one of its syllables to try to construct something like that. But that wasn't what Paul was was about. He is just reminding them of what Jesus said so that he can call them to repentance for the way they were treating each other. That's how he's using this text. He presents it to them to remind them that they are missing the point of Jesus' death by the way they treat each other during this meal. They're missing the point that when you come to Jesus and what he offers as your only hope, you're recognizing there is nothing good in you that could separate you from anybody else. So, so the, beauty, the beauty of communion, this meal, the Lord's Supper, in community, as it was meant to be, is it reminds us that what binds us together, what makes us one body, is Jesus. And it reminds us of how insignificant anything that might separate us actually is in the grand scheme of things compared to what we really need if we're to be satisfied and if we're to be forgiven then the things that separate us from each other the kinds of things that secretly in our hearts and minds we think make us better than each other are so insignificant that they aren't even worth mentioning the point is 
This meal is a chance to kill off our sense of superiority or insecurity or resentment or envy or anything that has us looking at each other and comparing ourselves to each other. This is a meal where we look around at each other and remind ourselves while we're taking it, while we're lined up, filing over to collect it, that though I would never wear your outfit in a thousand lifetimes, we are brothers in Christ. And we are both naked and come to Him for dress. It's a chance to look around at each other and look at someone whose voting record you know and say, I cannot even fathom how you get logically to a place where you could cast your vote for that guy. But Jesus ultimately is the only thing that can provide both of us with a hope that neither of our candidates could ever supply. It's a time to look around at each other and say, you know what? Even though I get my groceries at Dollar General and you shop at Whole Foods and this guy over here won't eat anything he didn't grow in his yard... Ultimately, we are all thirsty and we are starving and we are unsatisfied until we feed on Christ. That no matter how much money you have, we are all impoverished. We are all unable to buy what we really need. That though you hurt me by what you said or by what you didn't say, by what you failed to even see, how you've excluded me. Ultimately, I'm forgiven by Jesus. And so I forgive because we are brothers and sisters and we are one body because we feed on one Christ. Now, that's what we do when we take the supper. But there's more here. There's more here. What does the supper do in us? Because some of the most interesting details in this passage, Paul's not really calling them to anything. He's warning them of something that has happened and will happen if they continue to practice in the way they are. Paul sees the supper as something that has a mysterious power even to make you sick. Paul warns them against taking the supper in an unworthy manner. What is that? And here's the short answer about what the supper does in us. I want to tease it out a little bit, and then we're going to celebrate it together, okay? What the supper does in us, the supper is a habit-forming, heart-shaping, community-building power supply. It's a habit-forming, heart-shaping, and community-building power supply. Paul's warning is mysterious, that's for sure. It's a warning against taking the supper in an unworthy manner. I think, in my, uh, before the last two or three years or so, what I thought that meant was taking it in sin without recognizing your sin, sort of not caring much about what's going on in the supper, not really taking it seriously, but that's what it was. And so it would lead to a lot of like, introspection. Like, am, am I really like, free from from unrepented sin as I take the supper. I think that's a fine thing to do, but I don't think that's really the main thing he's talking about here. Uh, in fact, it could be counterproductive for you to think about it that way. Because the point of the supper, the whole point of it, is that none of us are worthy 
We don't deserve to take this. It's all about what we don't bring to the table and what Jesus gives us. It's not meant to make you afraid that you could slip up and, and, and hurt yourself by taking this. That's not what it's for. You know, what Paul's talking about when he says unworthy manner has to, be, has to be defined by what we've already seen from the bigger picture. What was unworthy about the way they were t- doing this supper is that they weren't caring about each other. They were all about themselves. It didn't unify them. It didn't have anything to do with Jesus. It wasn't even his supper anymore. It was all about them. That's what it is to take it in an unworthy manner without looking around and to use his phrase, without discerning the body. He's already used body language to talk about what the church is and he's going to use it again in the next chapter. I think that's what he means here. If you take the supper without paying attention to your, to your body, to what your choices mean for others who are in your life and in your community, well then, then that's to take it in an unworthy manner. It's unworthy because it misses the point of the supper and it reinforces exactly the opposite of what the supper is meant to cultivate in us. We're made one body because we share the loaf that is Jesus, but to eat it without recognizing our oneness is to eat it dangerously, even to eat it to judgment. And I think here's what he means. to To take his negative picture here, his warning, and make it positive, and to try to spin it as a, okay, here's what the supper is doing in us. Here's what I want to say. It's, it's a power. It's a power that can be destructive, but what the power is meant for, ultimately, if it's rightly used, is to bind us and to shape us into a certain kind of person in community. I don't know if you noticed this, but the language he uses in that last paragraph, and his, his warning language about what happens when you take the supper and how powerful it is, is very, very similar to two other places we've already come to in 1 Corinthians. He uses almost the same language to talk about the power of sex inside and outside of marriage. How it's this perfectly designed power supply for bringing two people together, all of life. How outside of that context it can destroy And he's used it to talk about whether you should eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol and do that in the temple to which that's dedicated to that idol. He talks about the danger of fellowshipping or sharing in or participating in demons even. What we we notice there is he says, it's not about the food. The food doesn't have any power in it. It's not magic. It's what happens when you eat in that place with those people for that purpose. The food in that context has a sort of shaping power on you. And here's what I think he means, to talk about it in the context of communion. I think what he means is that food has a way of leveraging our physicality in one direction or another. That God created us with these bodies, he gave us taste buds, he made us habit-forming creatures, and then he turns us loose with instructions to leverage all that's true about us towards our commitment to Jesus and our trust in and satisfaction in him. There's something mysterious and that you can't really even capture in words that happens to you when you're joining everything in your body and soul together towards a purpose. That, that the food itself, its tastes and smells, eaten in this particular way, has a certain power to it that, that our words can't fully capture. That when you do it in the right way, it can aim you more fully than otherwise at Jesus. It can shape your heart to the, so that you love this thing. It can form you into a sort of creature who by habit looks at the things that this meal calls you to look at 
to see all of your life in light of Christ and what he offers you, to see each other in light of Christ and what he offers you. That the meal itself, the physicality of it, the tastes and the smells of this food can make you more habit-formed towards those ends. That's why a meal, that's why he doesn't just call us to reciting certain words. There's something about it that, that has a power to it. And here's the way one writer put it. I thought this was very insightful. The writer's name is Peter Leifert. He says that though the Eucharist, is what he's calling the Lord's Supper or Communion, Though it doesn't bypass the mind and conscious reflection, it's not that the mind is not engaged. If the mind is unengaged, it can't do you any good. So it doesn't bypass it. It's that the effect it has, this, this practice, the effect that it has is more in the realm of acquiring a skill than in the realm of learning a new set of facts. Let me say that again. This is, this is really important. What it does by engaging all of your person in this event It's more like acquiring a skill, a kind of whole body and soul muscle memory than it is about learning a new set of facts. The effect, he says, is more a matter of training than teaching. At the supper, we eat bread and drink wine together with thanksgiving, not merely to show the way things really ought to be, not just to show the way things really ought to be, but to practice the way things really ought to be. Not automatically, he continues, but in the context of biblical teaching and a robust community life, the skills and virtues practiced at the Lord's table will spill over to fill the whole church with a Eucharistic ethos. Now here's what I think he means. By practicing at the table all that the table represents, not just for us as individuals, but for our community and our life together, by the practice of coming to do this seemingly outside of context random thing, every time we come to that, we, we get new and better all of life muscle memory for loving each other well. That our church becomes characterized by a new way of looking at things that this regular practice has the power to actually change us, to give us new habits, new aims for our hearts towards new objects, to bind us in a community identity that isn't possible outside of it. It is, in that sense, what we do in our own little way, in our own little school auditorium, has real power to it. And this isn't the kind of power that's magic that sort of transforms into something other than what it is and thereby changes us. It's the power of practice, the power of using the gifts God has given us in trust that he will work through them to become a different kind of people. And that's the tragedy in what the Corinthians were doing. Because in their meal, they were leveraging all the power of that ceremony towards something else altogether. What they were aiming at was more and deeper love for themselves deeper trust in what they had to offer. And in that trust, what makes it so dangerous, what makes it even possible that they will bring down judgment on them is that they are aiming themselves at false gods. So we don't take the supper lightly. When we look back and look up and look out and look around when we do it together around this table in this place 
We are leveraging power that is beyond any one of us. And so what we have to do is examine ourselves to make sure we are leveraging it in the right direction. Because what the supper is meant to do is to create a different kind of life. It isn't about us communing one-on-one with God. It is about us becoming more like Jesus through practicing the gifts that he gave to us. And what that looks like is a different and altogether supernatural kind of love for each other. The supper, basically, we are called here to a supper-shaped life. Now, we're going to do this together. Normally, uh, we do it on the first Sunday of each month, and we build the service around it. But today, it just didn't seem right not to do it together, even though, even though we've celebrated it recently. And we want to do it in response to this passage. So what I'm going to do first is pray for us to conclude this message and to prepare us for this meal. And then, and then we're going to practice the communion in the same way that we always do. We're going to sing a couple of songs that help aim us at what we should be aimed at, at our need for Jesus, and at the, the beautiful reality that Jesus is everything that we need if we come to him in faith. And any time during those two songs, you guys can come to the, to the front and take bread and take the cup. But we're going to ask you to take it back with you to your seat so that we can all take it together. Remember, it's about unity. I want you coming up here looking around at each other and thinking, my brothers, my sisters, I don't care how different we are. My brothers, my sisters, we are together in our feasting on Jesus. That's what we're going to do when we take it. Let me go to, go to our Father and ask him to prepare us to do it well. Father, you have given us great gifts in your Son and in this supper that your Son left us with until he comes. And even though we don't fully understand its power, even though we can't even capture its power fully in words, we want a taste of its power. We thank you for not, for not treating us only in light of what we understand for not demanding that we're able to figure things out before you will save us by your power. We want to leverage this beautiful gift for all it's worth in ourselves and in our community. So, Father, by your Spirit, be with us and be pleased by the way that we come to you as the source of everything that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.